Hello and welcome to The Hated and the Dead with Tom Lehman. This week, The Hated and the Dead focuses again on southeastern Europe, but this time, and for the first time, we will be looking at a country that no longer exists. The Socialist Federal Republic of Yugoslavia, which died a slow, ugly death in the 1990s, was made up of seven modern-day countries. They are Slovenia, Croatia, Bosnia-Herzegovina, Montenegro, North Macedonia, Kosovo and Serbia. Whilst Slobodan Milosevic spent much of his political life claiming he was president of Yugoslavia, he can much more accurately be described as a Serbian nationalist. Dissatisfied with what he saw as a powerful Serbia's emasculation within Yugoslavia, Milosevic spent his political career in the 1980s and 90s tearing up a delicate balancing act in the Balkan country that had lasted for 40 years. The result was Europe's worst bloodshed since the Second World War, with four wars of independence gripping the former Yugoslavia through the 1990s and hundreds of thousands losing their lives. Milosevic's forces lost all four wars, but in spite of this, he managed to stay in power until 2000 after nearly a decade of fighting. Whilst Milosevic's strategic and military judgement has to be called into question, his political skill in keeping the Serbian people on side for so long, amid international humiliation and retaliation in the form of NATO airstrikes, cannot be sidelined. At a time when Europe is once again experiencing war on its soil, the ability for contemptible leaders to carry on, even as the world applies pressure on them, must not be forgotten nor underestimated. My guest for this conversation is Igor Bandovich, director for the Belgrade Centre for Security Policy and the president for the Belgrade Centre for Human Rights. We discuss the shaky history of Yugoslavia, the rise of Serbian nationalism inside a country supposed to contain it, and the effectiveness of Western involvement in a part of the world where NATO troops have now been stationed for over 20 years. Ladies and gentlemen, it's time to introduce Slobodan Milosevic. Good afternoon, Igor. How are you? Hello, Tom. Good. Slobodan Milosevic is the subject of our conversation today. I've seen him described recently as the man Europe wished or hoped they'd never see again. He represented something in the European body politic that Europeans thought had gone. What did Milosevic do to accrue that reputation, in short? Well, Milosevic uh, sparkled the nationalistic flame of the former Yugoslavia back in the early uh, 90s. And actually, before that, when he came to power in Serbia immediately, uh, in the late 80s, when he actually change his communist uh, past with nationalistic present and the future. What he did uh, was he firstly reducted uh, the, the autonomous provinces of Vojvodina and Kosovo because he wanted to have central r- rule in Serbia. And, um, and then actually pretending that he wanted to defend Serbs across the borders 
of the former Yugoslavia, that means former republics of Yugoslavia, he practically um, waged war against all others. In his life and in his biography, you can put four wars that he basically lost. And I think that some worst atrocities in the former Yugoslavia and during the Yugoslav wars happened during his reign. So this is probably something for which he will be remembered in European history. And unfortunately for the things that Europe didn't want to see, and this is genocide in Srebrenica, ethnic cleansing, um, and, you know, basically all the characteristics of Yugoslav war, when you look at it from this perspective, can be boiled down to the fact that this was a war uh, with major characteristic of committing war crimes. And it was that nasty, really. So I think that that is his legacy, and this is what he did. Thank you. I think that sets up well the conversation we're going to have. Milosevic was born in 1941, really in the eye of the storm. The kingdom of Yugoslavia suffered terribly during the Second World War, um, and especially the the Serbs. I think what's really important in understanding the psyche of Milosevic and the journey he took your country on is the relationship between Serbia and wider Yugoslavia, which was not always an entirely harmonious one. What happened to the Serbians during the Second World War, um, and what was their tie to Yugoslavia at the time? Well, first of all, um, then uh, Kingdom of Yugoslavia was composed of um, Serb, Serbs, Croats, uh, and Slovenians, while other national minorities or nationalities were not, not recognized then. Um, it was a kingdom, and the Kingdom of Yugoslavia uh, was ruled by the dynasty of then Karadjordjevici, uh, who were Serbs, uh, uh, family Karadjordjevici um, were sitting in Belgrade. Um, there were numerous issues when, with this country, but it was, um, let's say, more or less as other countries uh, back then in Europe. It was in, in the early f- phases of industrial industrialization, it was a country of peasants. There was a big differences between rich and poor. And um, what happened with the invasion? And and actually, Yugoslavia was trying to to have a let's say smart politics and not to really uh, not to really provoke the Germans because they were um, you know invading then um, other parts of Europe. So then, kingdom of Yugoslavia signed those uh, treaties with Germany, trying not to be invaded by them. Uh, but due to the fact that um, uh, very active Communist Party existed in Yugoslavia then, and uh, riots broke out as a result of this treaty, um, Hitler then uh, wanted to punish Yugoslavia, and he invaded and conquered it in six days. And this is exactly uh, happened 
only a couple of months after uh, Milosevic uh, was born. And he was born in a um, uh, religious family. His, his grandfather was a priest, but his father was a, a member of the Communist Party. So this, let's say, predicted his um, future. He has, been, he, he has become a member of the Communist Party in the early days. He was a student of law back in the um, 60s in Belgrade. And then he started to become politically active in the communist youth. Then he met his then best friend, Ivan Stambolic, who was once president of Yugoslavia. And this is how he, let's say, stepped up the ladder through the communist nomenclature. This is what he, 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 he wanted to achieve from the beginning. Yeah. Yugoslavia survived the Second World War but it became a communist country after 1945, led by Tito, a very famous figure in post-war European politics. I, I've seen that Yugoslavia, given its kind of internal religious and ethnic diversity, you mentioned the Croats and the Bosniaks and the Serbs, um, it, it's, it's always needed a kind of external force to keep it together, you know, and that could have been the Habsburgs or the Ottomans in the kind of imperial age. Um, but Tito also provided that role after World War II. Serbia has always had the largest population within Yugoslavia. It's kind of the most dominant element amongst the Croats and the Bosnians, the Slovenes, etc. Do you think that, to some extent, Tito's keeping together of Yugoslavia relied upon a certain subjugation of Serbia and Serbian power? Yes, there was a lot of that in Yugoslavia. But I think that uh, Tito was also trying to rule... Uh, by cutting off all the nationalistic movements in, back then in, in, in Yugoslavia. Because in the early stages of Yugoslavia, the communists were aware of the problem of nationalism that existed not only in the 90s, but also in the, during the Second World War. Because when it comes to that, I mean, uh, outside of Yugoslavia, maybe that was a war between... Uh, you know, evil and the good, but within Yugoslavia, that was also war between different ideologies, basically capitalist and, and communist one. And also it was a brotherhood war where actually Chetniks, and especially in Serbia, were fighting partisans, but also in Bosnia and other parts. So this was not only, I mean, in Serbia and Yugoslavia, that was not really clear cut uh, who... Uh, the war is, you know, who is fighting for, for what within this war. So in that sense, uh, uh, communists were aware that nationalism is alive and they have to reduce it, they have to keep it down in order Yugoslavia to survive. And Tito somehow managed not to really open up that Aladdin, you know, and, and he managed, I mean, Yugoslavia existed for, I mean, post-Second World War, Yugoslavia existed for, 40 years, and he managed to, to find the balance, especially having in mind that he also had a relatively successful, autonomous, independent, unaligned uh, politics, you know. Uh, but he, when he died, uh, I think this nationalistic 
um, wave then was revived and then no one was there to stop it. Yeah, I think that that balance that you talked about didn't really outlast Tito. I think that's the the consensus. Um, And it seems that Milosevic's career was really based on kind of tearing up that balance. I think he was the orchestrator of of ending that that, um, equilibrium Uncomfortable, that kind of uncomfortable equilibrium though it might have been um i've read that one of the most important speeches in launching milosevic as uh, a politician was one he gave in 1987 in kosovo um can you explain a little bit about that speech yeah that was a famous speech because that was the basically he came uh, to support local serbs and as a result of that speech, he reducted the autonomous authority of then um, province of Kosovo. Uh, he came on the basis that Serbs are, um, let's say, uh, threatened there. Uh, they are uh, victims of the then Albanian majority. And he gathered them on this famous place, which is called Kosovo Polje. Uh, which is also a symbol and a place where famous Kosovo battle took uh, place in 1389, where actually yeah. Serbian knights were fighting on Ottoman Empire. So it has a very deep and symbolic meaning to Serbs. And he came there to uh, and he said something which is important. First of all, he said... No one uh, dares to beat you, meaning um, Serbs will be protected against, um, let's say, police um, uh, harassment. And secondly, he said that um, the war and the battles we will try to avoid, but we will not uh, escape them if if they are necessary. And, I mean... All of the sudden, it was, this was a kind of a proclamation of the war in Yugoslavia, you know, because mentioning only that, um, I think, uh, for the other republics and other peoples in Yugoslavia was dangerous thing, especially in the in in, in the moment when practically all federal institutions of Yugoslavia were collapsing, and this is this is how it started. And, you know, for him, this is how he attended. Yes, and I suppose making that speech um, in, of all places, the place, the site of the most famous battle in Serbian history in, in Kosovo was, was obviously a, 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 a kind of indication of, of what his intentions were to some extent. Um, I mean, he was basically speaking now as a politician for Serbians rather than Yugoslavians, right? Exactly. He was reacting against the kind of Serbia light Tito arrangement. Yes, he was. He was. Uh, he was trying to really occupy the the political space with a new ideology, and that was nationalistic ideology. I mean, for him, and I, you know, and looking back, uh, looking back at those days, I never would say that he was really true believer in that. In 
some kind of a nationalistic uh, ideology of all Serbs or really protecting Serbian territories, territories and people against all others. Uh, but as a communistic apparatchik, which, which he was, he just needed to, uh, you know, grab the power, and he was trying to be very opportunistic, and to, you know, to take advantage of the nationalistic ideology that was spread uh, in the absence of the communist one, and he was just riding that way basically from the beginning, and this is how he came to power. Uh, of course, the problem with him speaking for the Serbs was that technically he was still speaking for all of Yugoslavia because he was the leader ostensibly of Yugoslavia, the, the Federal Republic of Yugoslavia. Um, and that was a country that in, over the next sort of five years after he gave that speech basically fell apart. Um, mm -hmm. You know, first the Croatians and the Slovenians left in 1991 and then most crucially, in some ways, Bosnia and Herzegovina voted in a referendum to leave in 1992. Why was Bosnia's secession so problematic for Serbia and for Serbians compared to Slovenia and Croatia? I, I think that secession of both Croatia and Bosnia was much problematic than Slovenia. And in case of Bosnia, it was the most terrible because it was the deadliest war that happened there. But I, I wouldn't differentiate really Croatia and Bosnia. The thing was that a lot of Serbs lived in Croatia and especially Bosnia, and unlike in Slovenia. And for Slovenia, he gave up rather you know, Slovenia easy because there were no Serbs there. Uh, for Croatia, there was a totally different story. And he wanted to protect uh, Serbs there. And wh while I'm saying this protect, I think this is a really false premise. Because what he was trying to really fight for, it was the territory of Yugoslavia. Not really people. He, he never really cared about people. And, you know, when we look at how all these refugees from both Croatia and Bosnia ended up and how they were living in Serbia and how, how they were moved around, we see that he didn't really care cared about people. He cared about the territory, and he wanted to. In the you know, in the in the moment when he realized that Yugoslavia will fall apart, he wanted to protect as much territory as he can. And and th this is why he came up in Croatia and then also in Bosnia, been setting up this artificial Serb uh, territories where actually he was arming. Uh, Serbian paramilitaries, Serbian uh, minorities, Serbian people who lived there, and um, you know, in a way, very much like what uh, Putin is doing in Donetsk uh, area in Ukraine now, arming them and trying uh, to protect the territory, claiming that's Russian or claiming in Milosevic case, claiming that's uh, Serbian. In Bosnia. Uh, because Serbs were a uh, quite large population, um, uh, and they had 
uh, I think most of the arms left out of the Yugoslav People's Army, the the fighting was the most fierce and the atrocities were the worst and the, the, the death toll was the biggest of all wars in, in former Yugoslavia. So this idea of, of Serbian nationalism, Serbian chauvinism, you think was just a, a ploy, really? He saw, you know, valuable land slipping away and he wanted to keep hold of it. Yes, I mean, you know, there was always underlying factor of Serbian nationalism, which is not to, to be downplayed. Uh, and there were a lot of nationalists around him who were, you know, fulfilling their nationalistic dreams. But for him himself, and just looking uh, retrospectively on that, he was not really <clears throat> in that way... Um, you know, defender of Serbian national interest. Or he, he was a really lousy one because he, I mean, Serbia lost, thanks to him, everything uh, that it had. The war in Bosnia attracted the attention of the Western powers. Um, what did the Serbs do in Bosnia? What did Milosevic order in Bosnia to kind of attract the ire of the West and particularly in the end uh, NATO and the US? Milosevic had two allies in Bosnia who were on one hand political leader of, of Bosnian Serbs, uh, Radovan Karadzic and on the other hand army general Ratko Mladic uh, and he was really running the Bosnia with them as a, as a allies, as a partners in that, um, well, in that joint criminal enterprise, as ICTY would describe that. The fact that Bosnia, Bosnia was a place where the most work, uh, war uh, atrocities happened attracted the international community. We had first time after 50 years in Europe concentration camps. We have separation of people based on the ethnicity, based on the religion. They were separated, divided, men from the women. Massive uh, rapes of the, of the women who belong to different uh, religion and nationality uh, was a common thing in the Bosnian War. Uh, I don't know, when I'm thinking about that, I don't know whether, you know, this happened because Serbs were armed to the teeth or just they were instructed to do that. But uh, when you ask Serbian nationalists in Bosnia why such terrible things happened and why did you do them, they were usually explaining that this is a consequence of the Second World War because once we were the same victims and we were basically in the same position. So, you know, all of the sudden, sudden victims have become uh, perpetrators. So, uh, yes, but these, these uh, pictures, really, of concentration camps, of people who are looking as people in Auschwitz would look like, attracted the international community, and especially U.S., 
uh, which the, and they thought because EU was, I would say, then really weak, a weak organization. It was just consolidating in terms of the EU, its foreign and security policy. So the member states and uh, most uh, importantly Germany was there really to try to keep order uh, in in that part of the Europe. But the US was really active, and when they saw that, I mean, it recalled all the pictures from the Second World War, and they said we have to stop that, and we have to stop these uh, things happening in the you know in the heart of the Europe basically. And this is how he started losing um, credibility because at the, at the beginning he had some sympathies in the West because when he was talking to his interlocutors from the West, he was saying that he wants to preserve Yugoslavia. And for, uh, for example, for the US in the early days of the war, Yugoslavia was still a viable solution. But when they saw what are the results on the ground when it comes to the Croatia and then Bosnia, they thought this is just, uh, you know, this is not going to fly. And we have to do something about that. And then, you know, all of a sudden, in 1995, Srebrenica massacre, genocide happened, and that was it. That was the end of uh, the story. Yes, the Bosnian war ended with the Dayton Agreement, which was negotiated by uh, the Clinton administration of the United States, specifically Richard Holbrooke. Um, and it and it led, you know, ultimately to the independence of Bosnia and a kind of um, shaky peace in that country. But it didn't get rid of Milosevic. Milosevic signed the agreement, and I suppose that... Um, I'm speculating here, but from the US side, the agreement might have been that as long as Milosevic signs the agreement, then we'll keep him in place. Um, do, do you think that he could have stepped down and have been all right at that particular juncture? Say after Dayton, if he'd have stepped down, he might have been discredited. But do you think that he would have avoided the, uh, the end of his life? in a jail cell in The Hague that he ultimately got. Looking back, was this a kind of point at which he, he, had, he had options? I think after Dayton Agreement, he could, he could have get away with, with, with everything. But unfortunately, um, he was uh, then five years in power, and he, as most of the power politicians, he liked that. Uh, especially after Dayton Agreement, there was uh, some positive uh, tones coming from the West. You know, I, I recall that Richard Holbrook, the late Richard Holbrook, called him he's the guarantor of the peace and stability of the Balkans for Milosevic. So I think that he liked that, and he liked to be important figure. I mean, all his life he wanted to do, do that, to make peace or to wage war. For, for him, that was important role to play. So he couldn't do that, probably because immediately after uh, he was faced with a relatively decent uh, opposition movement, which grew in Serbia as he was uh, really focusing more on the, what's happening in Croatia and Bosnia than really what's, what's happening in, in domestic politics in Serbia. And there was this coalition 
which was called Coalition Together, which at one point in time managed to get um, uh, you know party infrastructure in place, and they and the first local elections immediately after Dayton Agreement, um, they won uh, thirty biggest towns in Serbia, and then I, I guess he. he he thought probably that they will, you know, they will overthrow him at one point. So instead of recognizing the elections, he basically uh, uh, falsified them, and that resulted in uh, the biggest way of demonstrations against Milosevic since his uh, inception in power. Uh, that was, uh, and the protest lasted for three months. Um, it has been internationalized. OSC came. Uh, they verified the elections and recognized the victory of the of the opposition. And this this is the first time that the opposition got into power in Milosevic Serbia, which then resulted in um, in uh, win that happened three years after uh, in uh, two thousand. So this was 1996-7, right? 1996-7, yes. Yeah. Uh, I mean, by, you were sort of, what, 1920 at this point, Eagle? Uh, I, look, I, was, I was 19. I, lo- I, was I looked 19. up your age before we started, so I didn't just guess. Um, yeah, yeah. I was a uh, freshman in Belgrade. I was on the first year of the Faculty of Law then. Okay. I mean, I wanted to ask, because obviously Milosevic had, had lost three wars by this stage you know yugoslavia had had lost slovenia croatia and now bosnia um what was it like living in serbia at that time i mean did did it feel like this was a country that was falling apart from your point of view well um i think that living then in serbia was kind of uh living in a war which you don't see but it's happening. You you see all the consequences of the war. You see people marching in the uniforms, coming from the uh, battlefields in Bosnia every weekend, getting drunk in the in the in towns in Serbia and shooting their Kalashnikovs when they get drunk. There there was a lot of chaos. And you know, important thing is that since 1992. Serbia was under tough sanctions of the UN. So basically, there was no, um, let's say, gasoline, there was no uh, oil, and poverty was huge. Uh, and, we, and probably the most important thing for my generation then, that we couldn't travel. We were not allowed to travel. I mean, this turned out to be a positive thing, because by preventing youth to travel, you create a huge mass of people who are really unsatisfied with the situation in the country. I think that helped topple Milosevic in the end, because, I mean, unlike today, when we have, um, uh, I will not call it similar, but uh, again, very autocratic leader in in power in Serbia, our, our youth are leaving the country. I mean, even then, there were a lot of people who are leaving, but most of them were staying and really resisting this because they were not allowed to travel. 
on the on 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 the other side, I think we were not very. I mean, most of the people didn't know what was happening really in Bosnia and Croatia because Milosevic media propaganda was such that we were always the victims of the war. And only those who are either living close to the border or who were really the witnesses um, were really aware of that. I mean, not to mention that we had a couple of TV channels, which were only controlled by Milosevic. It was not allowed to watch, I don't know, international news channels like CNN or BBC. Uh, so it was not easy to get information. But for those people who were, uh, let's say, uh, living close to the border or, or you know, hearing things about things that are happening in Bosnia and Asia, I think it would, they were aware that things were not going all right. Then... When the protests started, and with a really police brutality, uh, you know, going on a really high level, I think people starting to realize that it's not only Milosevic that is harm, you know, harmful to other nations in 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 former country, but also to, to towards the Serbs as well. So this is the feeling that we that we had then. In some ways, the speech that Milosevic gave, if you look back at the speech that he gave in 1987 about Kosovo, it kind of foreshadowed the end of his quest to keep Yugoslavia together um, because his final quest was a war in in Kosovo. That was the fourth war that he fought. Um, And I suppose in some ways it kind of, raised the stakes for him, Kosovo, because Kosovo had been part of Serbia. Do you think that was the case? Do you think that this was this was a, a more important psychological war for him? It was a very important um, that uh, somehow, you know, when you look at the circle of the violence that broke out in Yugoslavia, somehow the war came home in that way, because the war was happening in the territory of then Yugoslavia, oh, Serbia, excuse me. Uh, and it was the first time that actually Serbian citizens were witnessing the war, as it was not happening outside of, the, of, of Serbia. I think this was a long time coming, because the first incidents actually, uh, on the eve of or the beginning of the solution in Yugoslavia started in Kosovo. So, so it was only a matter of time where actually incidents will uh, spread. And um, Milosevic uh, was using this type of crisis and incidents really to rule uh, more efficiently. And, uh, you know, in case of uh, Kos- Kosovo, more ruthlessly. So I think um, for the most people, this was the first time that they're witnessing war, because apart from the war in Kosovo, what we had is the NATO bombing of of whole Federal Republic of Yugoslavia. That that means uh, today's Serbia and Montenegro. But also emotionally, Kosovo was, uh, I think, much important for majority of the people in Serbia because of the whole myth about Kosovo that existed 
in Serbia. Um, and yes, this was this was this was the in a way um, let's say landscape of, of that war. Yes, getting back to this sort of thirteen eighty nine yeah. battle that's become such a big part of, of Serbian nation building. Also, I mean, in the end, obviously, this was when the the sort of uh, Western powers really uh, lost patience with with Slobodan Milosevic, and they, as you said, they they consistently bombed Serbia through ninety nine, and and as and in the end, they actually they obviously occupied Kosovo, and and now there are barely any Serbians left in Kosovo, and, and this was. This was ultimately the end of, of Milosevic, this final humiliation, um, w- which was his ousting in 2000. Yes, I mean, there are, fa- I mean, first of all, many Serbs left Kosovo. There are still some of them who remain. It is around 100,000 people out of 2 million uh, Kosovo Albanians who are living there. Um, the, the the peace was signed, and then military agreement was signed, which actually declared and asked for Serbian authorities, especially military and police, to withdraw from Kosovo. Um, NATO forces, um, nicknamed uh, K4, came and they occupied, and they're still there. Uh, so yes, for for. Milosevic, that was the end of the war games in the Balkans. He retreated in Belgrade. He declared victory over NATO on the 12th of June 1999, and that he managed to protect the vital interests of Serbia, which was totally uh, not true, uh, having in mind that Basically, effectively, as of that, Serbian army and police were not controlling that part of the territory. And uh, he, he has become even more ruthless towards the, you know, uh, open uh, to intellectuals in Serbia, to critical opposition, to civil society then. And uh, he was, in a way, cornered as of 1999 while the international com- community was starting to look for the po- political alternatives. And they, they started basically talking with the, with, the, with the opposition parties, pro-democratic opposition parties. And then the other thing was that economy was in such a dire state that after the war in Kosovo, we had average salary of uh, 20 Deutsche Marks which is uh, now 10 euros. And this practically lasted until the fall of, until the fall of Milosevic in October in 2000. The so-called bulldozer revolution. Yes. Because of the, of the presence of a bulldozer, I think, at the site of the parliament, right? They sort of drove a bulldozer into the, uh, into the parliament building in Belgrade? Yes. Yes, what, what happened is that preparations for um, big demonstrations that, that will overthrow Milosevic were happening as of end of the bombing, actually. Uh, for everyone, it was clear that there is no uh, political... Uh, I mean, there's no way that he'll, he, he will 
uh, win anything again. He lost the wars, he lost the territory, and for even Milosevic supported it was clear there is no future for him. It was a, only a it was only a matter of how, because he has militarized the police. He has uh, become very ruthless. He already did some political assassinations uh, of um, prominent journalists um, in Serbia proper. Uh, also, he he had paramilitaries who came back from all these battlefields, uh, you know, in Yugoslavia and they came back to Belgrade. So he had widespread, um, let's say, uh, armed forces on his display in order to counter the, the, the opposition parties and to arrest people and to harass them and everything else. So, yeah, the, the preparations were um, on the way and then suddenly, all of a sudden, he, he decided to go for the elections and to become, uh, he wanted to become a president instead of be, be president of Serbia, he, he wanted to be president of Yugoslavia for another, another time. Um, he shortened his mandate and, um, and then uh, actually preparations for his, uh, first of all, democratic opposition of Serbia, which was a united opposition front against him, managed to uh, get more votes on the one hand side, on the other hand side, on that 5th of October, so-called bulldozer revolution, they managed to defend uh, their election, electoral victory in the streets of Belgrade. That was the end of, of Milosevic. He, he ultimately ended up dying in a, in a jail cell in The Hague in 2006. He was awaiting a trial for, for war crimes. Um, I mean... I just want to I want to reflect on on his image, but also on on the way that the West kind of treated this this part of the world during this period. I've often seen Milosevic derided as being a bit of an idiot, you know, self-obsessed, never listening to his advisors, creating this ridiculous world around him where everybody agreed with him and that he was doing brilliantly. I, I was thinking this morning, though, this was a man that lost four wars. By 2000, his, country's, his country was about a third of the size as it had been when he took over um, at the end of the 1980s. He must have had some political skill to have gotten through all of that. He led the country. He was so bad. The 90s were so awful. And yet he got to the end of it. And he warded off the Western powers for a long, long time. He ultimately wasn't taken down by the West. He was taken down by his own people. There must have been some political skill there. He was the guy who was uh, very tactical and he was using, maneuvering very much and playing, um, especially during the 90s, West against the East. And this is one of his skills. Secondly, he, he knew very well how to, when to stop and when to withdraw. He knew what were his red lines until the very end. And uh, uh, he was good in, I mean, that was his good diplomatic skill. Also, I, I think that most of the people around him uh, were uh, pretty much, you know, picturing 
really, really rosy picture of what was going on, but he was, um, as being paranoid as he was, he didn't believe them. And I, and, and I think that, that was another thing that he, that he had. Uh, also, I think that uh, the problem with Milosevic or, or, or his uh, good thing about Milosevic was that international community, as we know, as we know it nowadays, was only developing. You know, and there was no, not, I mean, in a way, former Yugoslavia and Serbia and Milosevic particularly were the case study of development of international criminal law. Uh, uh, you know, just to remind you that he was the first acting leader who was uh, prosecuted before the International Criminal Court while he was acting, while he was president, really. In, it happened during the NATO bombing in March uh, 1999. So, I mean, there was a lot of that international community learned from that case, uh, you know, both from Bosnian war and then before from Rwanda war. Uh, and I think that um, he used those loops and gaps in the international community to stay long in power. It was not only thanks to the blindness of people of Serbia, but also, uh, as I said, it was also, you know, fault of then international community. Why do you think it took so long for NATO to intervene decisively in Yugoslavia, in Milosevic's case? Because, um, I mean, this was war, it was war number four by the time that they really turned up the heat. He'd been in power for quite a long time. Well, they first of all had relative success. I mean, they were using the lim uh, limited intervention in Bosnia. And there was a bombing of Serbian forces in Bosnia just before the Dayton Agreement. And that led to Dayton Agreement, which, which was very important agreement, a peace agreement, because it stopped the war in Bosnia, which was um, the most bloodiest one. Uh, and then they thought th this recipe will be, um, you know, used again. Uh, but although, oh, and when I look back, I mean, probably if they had bombed uh, um, in 1992, maybe the wars would be, be prevented. But then, as I said, there was no, uh, you know, the, the conflict itself could have gone in either way, it could have been prevented, uh, but in our case, it, it, it just it just spread it, you know. So no one knew really, you know. And I and and for the NATO, NATO was uh, celebrating forty years of existence exactly on on that year when the bombing of Serbia started, and I think they were not. I mean, there was a lot of negotiations that even when the NATO intervened, there were a lot of members of the NATO who were against that, you know. So there was no consensus on that. And since they were bombing the country which is in the Europe, they needed to have consensus at least from the European partners. So there was a lot of consensus building within the NATO. And this was, in a way, the first... Uh, first uh, intervention where actually they had 70 countries on board agreeing to do this. So Im imagine the diplomacy be behind that. 
And this is, this is why it took them so long, probably. Yeah, I mean, I, I suppose that it was the... The war in Kosovo was the marker of the transition from NATO being essentially a defensive organization to being one that was offensive because it was intervening in a country that was not a NATO member for the, for the first time. And it's, and it's gone through a, something of a clunky transformation into a more offensive power um, since. When I asked your colleague Vuk Vuksanovic a, a couple of weeks ago, about the possibility of further conflict in Yugoslavia. He said that that was unlikely because there are still NATO troops in the region. Okay. When I was listening to that back afterwards, though, it, it struck me that if the reason you're not concerned about further conflict is because there are foreign troops there, it does beg the question of what would be happening if they weren't there. And the fact that the NATO troops are still there also calls into question the um, the original NATO interventions in Bosnia and Kosovo, because if they're still there, you know, nearly 25 years after, has the situation really been bettered? I mean, in that context, I was just wondering, what do you think of the success of the NATO intervention? Do you think you can call it a success, given that they're still there? Um, well, I mean... Probably you will have totally different question uh, answers if you ask different people from from this part of the region whether it was a success or not. Especially, I mean, if you take into account totally different position of Serbs and Albanians. For Albanians, it was a huge success because you know not uh, much after that in 2008 they declared that Kosovo is an independent country. While for Serbs, that was a thought, I mean, it was a loss of territory and more importantly, very much loss of the emotional, historical uh, part of the country. Um, whether it was a success, it was a success in a way that it prevented uh, ethnic cleansing of Kosovo Albanians. Uh, and that was a short term um, uh, success. Um, it managed to uh, somehow to put region into peace. But when I say peace, this, this is not, and this is probably your question about whether this peace is sustainable or not. Yes. Uh, uh, I think that we don't have potential anymore to, to wage a war. Um, I, I don't think any nation. But whether we progressed into a European region where actually instead of conflicts we are seeking partnership, cooperation and progress, we are still not there. And I, I would say we are somewhere in between. There are still uh, hatred, there are still tensions. Uh, I mean, they cannot be compared with the 90s, of course, but we still do need to have, I think, another generation of politicians who will actually secure that peace is sustainable and that it is grounded in a way that we can build something on peace. And I think that is uh, something that is still missing here. Just as a final question, when I speak to Westerners about Yugoslavia, I'm struck by how often they see Serbia as 
the bogeyman. Uh-huh. I was speaking to a friend of mine about this recently, but, but I also think that, and this is something that you alluded to, the, the fact that actually in World War II, the Serbs were the victims, not the perpetrators of, of genocidal tendencies. I was thinking that if, if, if we were speaking in, say, 1972, 50 years ago instead of 2022, we would see Croatia as the, the bogeyman because of what they did to Serbia in World War Two. As a Serbian, are you, are you conscious of a certain degree of ill-feeling abroad? Well, not anymore. I was aware of that, and I was faced with that uh, immediately after democratic changes took place in 2000, when I was first, you know, first traveling to, to, to abroad. I was faced, faced with these questions because, yes, there was a huge... Um, negative image of Serbia and Serbs because of Milosevic. And, you know, if I was asked, I remember in 2001 when I was in the U.S., when I said I'm from Serbia, people didn't know what is, what is, the, you know, what is the name of that country. And the guy was, is it Slovakia? No, I said it's Serbia. Oh, I know, that's Slobodan Milosevic. So, I mean, his uh, really, you know, his connection with Serbia was Slobodan Milosevic, which is the guy I hated the most, you know at the time. So, uh, yes, I was aware of that, but I think that that, that that no longer exists. Although, I have to say that for all diplomatic uh, internationals who were working in Serbia in the 90s, this is still the case. And, and they have still this uh, type of black or white uh, and good guys, bad guys, Worldview, uh, and this goes especially to, uh, in in, in uh, um, you know with the people who saw some you know really really bad things happening in in this region. But I think things in that way things are changing. So yeah, yeah, and I think image is improving thanks to other people you know who are famous Serbs. And do you see it as your job at the at the Belgrade? security center to kind of continue that to rehabilitate Serbia's image to some extent well uh, we are not really trying to do that I think that's 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 the job of of, of this country and the job of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs uh, I, I but if I would be in their position I would never make a rosy picture of the things or you know deny deny things that happening because these things were happening under the regime of Slobodan Milosevic. Many people truly supported it, but many people didn't. You know, Serbia was famous for these things, but Serbia was also famous for the first anti-war movement back in Yugoslavia. The first protest that happened in Yugoslavia against bombing of Dubrovnik happened in Belgrade. The biggest number of individuals who were fighting war and violence happened in Serbia. So, you know, it was even then that it proved to have democratic capacities. So, you know, you don't need to brag about uh, uh, Serbia being, and, you know, just picture the better image. You can tell the truth and people will choose on their own whether they will like it or not. Igor, thank you. I really enjoyed that. Um... Is there anything you want to direct people towards, people that are listening, you know, if, if people want to find out more about uh, the work you do, where can they go? 
They can go to our website. It's uh, www.bezbednost.org. Uh, we are working on foreign security policy of Serbia and the region. There are a lot of useful information. And if they are not interested in that, they can just come to Serbia and they will see lovely nature and enjoy the summer. Igor, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Hated and the Dead. If you've enjoyed this podcast, follow it on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, and, for good measure, leave us a review. You can also follow The Hated and the Dead on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook, so you never miss new content.